Hello and welcome to the Pain Foundry Podcast. If you're listening to this, then this is the fifth episode of the podcast. And this is your host, Tyler Daniel Hunter, aka TD Hunter. Two quick announcements here before we get into our discussion. The first is that I'm going to go ahead and tell a little bit of a clinical story similar to the uh, sort of narrative I told in the podcast episode titled Hunter Ellard to be continued. So if you want to listen to that, that'll be at the end of the episode. The second announcement is that I have went ahead and decided to start a little blog on my website, thepainfoundry.com. And this is kind of a blog where people living with chronic pain and illness can go and share some of their stories and some of their accounts and disease narratives that accompany living with chronic disease. And I just wanted to briefly explain my reasoning behind starting this little blog. I think I started it for a good reason, at least I like to think so. And you know, it's actually kind of interesting, at least to me, it's interesting how digital communication, aka blogging, can play a role in addressing the needs of individuals living with chronic pain or illness. And actually, it's becoming increasingly supported in research literature that communicating the experience of illness through blogging may provide positive psychosocial benefits to some patients living with chronic pain. And I'm now specifically referencing a paper published by Ressler, PK, and other authors, E.T. All. E.T. All is basically multiple other authors. I think I might have mispronounced how to pronounce that uh, in my second episode starring Joseph Goebbels. Anyways, the paper is titled, quote, Communicating the Experience of Chronic Pain and Illness Through Blogging, unquote. And that paper was published in 2012 out of Tufts University School of Medicine in Boston. It's a little bit older of a paper. Um, and, you know, I've never been to Boston, but I hear really good things about it. Anyways, the strong suggestion is that because, quote, chronic pain and illness may have an isolating effect on individuals, changing their perceived roles in society and challenging their ability to find meaning in life and their illness. Creating connections between the world of the sick and the world of the well can be important in the positive psychosocial functioning of individuals. Unquote. Additionally, as chronic pain and illness has been studied basically through the lens of medicine, various healthcare providers support, quote, methods of creating reflection, connection, and finding meaning and understanding through the use of illness narratives are advocated for patients and family members, unquote. So with that in mind, I'm going to go ahead and try to do my little part to contribute to that. You know, regardless of if anyone shares a story or not, I am going to go ahead and try to provide the space for it. I will say I would basically be walking on clouds if even two people shared their story and maybe formed a meaningful bond or connection. But nonetheless, I'm more concerned in trying to make meaningful change rather than, you know, having good results or producing good results of basically traffic and clicks to my website. So without further ado, please welcome Gabe Alonzo. Gabe Alonzo is a third-year law student in his final semester at South Texas College of Law, Houston. He has served as treasurer for the Oil and Gas Law Society, associate editor and articles editor for the Texas Journal of Business Law, and as a student attorney with South Texas College of Law, Houston Estate Planning Clinic. His experience includes working in the legal department of a publicly traded corporation, 
the Court of Appeals for the First District of Texas in a mid-sized civil litigation law firm in Houston, Texas. Gabe is currently a law clerk for Bailey Law Firm PLLC. He received his bachelor's degree in economics from Texas State University where he was actively involved in the Theta Lambda chapter of the Kappa Sigma fraternity. I guess let's just, uh, you know, take it from here. Sure, man. Well, um, yeah, I think the, the first thing that like really intrigued me when you sent me that message, like other than you being my boy is like a, like the first generation thing. First yeah. generation, you know, law student going to be an attorney at law. Like, um, I don't know. You want to just speak a little bit more about that or. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, thanks for having me. Um, I think this is an important platform that you've created to really discuss pain and, you know, all of the different types of pain that, that people really deal with. And um, I think that's why it's important to kind of give uh, my perspective as, you know, a first generation law student, almost attorney, um, that there's a lot of pain that this profession deals with um, that's, you know, more internalized and emotional and psychological as opposed to physical. And um, I think my journey as a, as a first generation, um, you know, law student and, and almost attorney um, really illustrated that to me because you know, um, my family, we immigrated from Colombia uh, when I was about six years old. And, um, you know, they had to face barriers uh, through their, you know, the language barrier. Um, there was there was a lot of adversity that they faced. Um, you know, they had to secure two jobs um, to make, you know, ends meet and stuff like that. So at the beginning, it was really tough. And, um, there's just a lot of pressure on, on, you know, kids that come as immigrants at a young age, because, you know, you really hear about um, people coming over and they want to better their own life, but really like they want to have the best opportunity for their children. And so their children are the ones that end up carrying that burden to really fulfill, you know, their parents' aspirations of them. And so I feel like there's a lot of pressure there and, you know, my, my parents, they weren't, they weren't like in a terrible situation in Colombia. My dad was a doctor. Um, and my mom was also like a healthcare administrator. So we, we were pretty well off over there, but really the reason they wanted to come over here was for us, for their children and to, to allow us to have those opportunities that may, may not be available, you know, to everybody, um, the way they are here. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of, I guess, pressure on, on me, you know, to really fulfill everything that they set out to, to accomplish here. And so, um, you know, I appreciate having the opportunity to, to really discuss this, uh, here. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of your, you know, listeners also internalize that pain. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, like I, it's cause you're my boy too. And I don't even know if we've introduced how we know each other. Um, me and Gabe actually went to uh, undergraduate together at Texas State University, and we were in the same fraternity, Kappa Sig fraternity, um, and uh, that's where we first met. So, yeah, no, I was so happy. Like, I'm really happy about this conversation, and I think, like, a good jumping off point for us is because we're kind of sharing the same timeline in, like, graduate school because you're about to graduate law school, and I'm about to graduate medical school. 
So I just thought that was so unique and like such a cool, positive thing that we could share. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's really, really awesome to, you know, keep those connections from, from undergrad. Um, you know, we definitely got into some, some fun stuff while we were there and it's, it's awesome that we're able to, you know, continue the relationship afterwards. Did you, so did you ever think that in undergrad, because like you wanted, you knew what you wanted to do, like, as you know, well, did you know you wanted to become an attorney in, in undergrad? You did. You totally were into law then. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever think at you that missed... point, I definitely did. Yeah. Um, I think I really came to that determination when I was in high school because I, I actually did a program where you got to, um, I guess, find a mentor that in an area of, you know, in a career that you were interested in. And I just reached out to a bunch of attorneys and I got I got to see like what one actually does. And that's kind of where yeah. the interest came in. Um, but yeah, no, it's awesome because, you know, we took some leadership roles while we were involved with Capitig. And I think that's definitely paid dividends. Like in our oh, yeah. undergraduate careers, we, you know, you have yeah. to step up and make the hard decisions. Yeah. We were talking about this earlier, you know, like sacrifices. Right. Um, you know, not not being able to hit the square every night because you're studying for the LSAT or you're studying for the MCAT, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and, it, you know, it's like, it's it's a weird pain because, like, you don't want to talk about it to other people because when you talk about it to people that don't, aren't, like, kind of going down that path or contributing towards that path, it's like, they don't really want to hear it. It's, it's almost like you're talking down to them, like, from a pedestal, but you're not. Like, when you want to try to connect with somebody with that, so it's always cool to talk to somebody like, you know, in a different profession that sort of like, you know, understands that as going through that. So when did you take uh, the LSAT? So uh, that one, I actually ended up taking three times, which gotcha. is why I didn't go straight into law school right after um, undergrad. Gotcha. Um, I took it the first time and I did all right. Um, but I, I felt like I could improve my score and, you know, it's really a numbers game in, in law school, your LSAT and your GPA, like undergraduate GPA really determines the type of law school you get into and, uh, um, you know, the scholarships that you get. Uh, and so I got into a few schools with my first score, but I didn't get that much money and I was like, I'll try it again. And so I moved to Austin after, uh, living in, uh, San Marcos for undergrad. And um, I was just working at a law firm, like pretty much full time, but then I would study part time and I took the exam. So my second score actually dropped and I guess I, I just wasn't as focused. And that was, you know, I don't know, that's kind of a punch to the gut to like study again and then end up getting a lower score. That was, that was a lot of pain. <laughs> and yeah. And, you know, I had a choice either because they take your highest score. So I would either use my first score or it would be like, I didn't take the second test and I was kind of pissed off. And I was like, no, I'm going to do it a third time and we're going to do it right this time. Yeah. And so I really sat down and focused and I did end up with a higher score than my first score, my third time. Gotcha. And um, I got into a few other schools. Um, but in the end, what really made my decision to go to South Texas here in Houston um, was the fact that they gave me the most money. So I got a pretty large scholarship from them. And, um, you know, it's helped out a lot because uh, my parents weren't really in the position to like pay for my school um, the entire time. So a lot of it has, has been financed through, you know, loans and stuff. And so I was really trying to limit that student debt. Where do you think 
like the resiliency came from that you could take the LSAT three times. I mean, the LSAT is like a serious exam, like, and it tests a totally different sort of line of thinking than like what I'm used to, you know. Yeah, it's all like problem solving and, you know, analytical thinking and reading comprehension. Um, so it doesn't really test you on the law because you don't know it yet. It just kind of tests if you'll be successful at learning the law. Which is not always like a true indicator. Like people can be, you know, just terrible test takers. And there's definitely been that. Uh, I've definitely seen that, you know, in law school that there are people that come in uh, with low LSATs, but they end up crushing it just because they they turn around their, um, you know, their work ethic. And I think that's that's really what it was about. Um, I think I lacked the work ethic on the second exam. Um, I didn't put in enough hours or I just wasn't as focused. I thought, you know, you could study in front of the TV and just kind of not be as focused. And um, I think that's a change that I was just like, you know, and it all goes down, you know, go, it all goes back to really my motivation of, you know, making my parents dream come true um, in, in their aspiration to like come here and have a better life. And, and I was like, you know, I like have one shot at this. Um, so let's, Let's do it right. And I can't, I think that's where like the grit came from. Gotcha. Yeah. Like, um, I don't know, just from like an outsider's perspective looking in, that's kind of like a lot of like heavy, like a heavy load to carry. Obviously, like I, I have such an appreciation for people that like your parents come in and, you know, from a different country and like make a life for themselves and, like to put that burden on their child, it just seems like it would be a lot to carry. Like, you know, it's yeah, like you're carrying and, your parents. And they don't even do it. Yeah. And they don't even do it intentionally. It's just, you know, it, maybe it's just my own personality that I, that's, that's what I, I want to do. But um, it's also kind of came from a reflection of them. Uh, for example, my father, he, you know, like I said, he was a doctor. In Colombia, when he came over here, he studied and um, worked his way up again, and um, he finished a bachelor's degree and became a registered nurse. And now he just finished his nurse practitioner's degree, so now he's, uh, oh my, wow. you know, yeah, uh, yeah, he just finished getting a certification in that as well. So oh, that's an, that's incredible. They're, they're still that's making moves. Story. Yeah, they're still making moves this, at this age. So <laughs> they're, still they're definitely an inspiration. It. Yeah. And how many siblings do you have, Gabe? Do you have any siblings? Yeah, I have I have a younger brother and an older half brother. Um, my younger brother is just now starting his, I guess, college career, um, but he's a little unsure of what he wants to do, you know. Um, yeah. So he's still trying to figure it out. And right now, with you know the whole pandemic, I just kind of advise to take some take some community college classes because if if you're going to go to a four year university and and have to sit in Zoom just like you would at a community college, there's no difference. Oh, yeah, totally agreed with you there. What is your perspective with like, I mean, obviously, with all of your accomplishments and, and what you've done? And do you like want your brother to kind of have a like a high powered career, you know, like do law or like a profession like that? Because sometimes like, honestly, with my brother, I'm like, dude, I don't know, like, sometimes some days I'm like, is it really worth it? Like, I have this passion, this dream, but, you know, all the sacrifice that we made and kind of the we haven't really talked about it yet, but the mental struggle and the the moments that we've given up and stuff like that, it's like, I don't know. 
some I you know I yeah. go back and forth like <laughs> what do yeah, you what is your thing days on? that are there's definitely some days that are tougher than others um you know when it comes to the motivation you're sitting there and trying to trying to take it all in but um no as far as for for my brother you know I just I just really want him to be happy um whether that's you know, with a high powered career or whether it's a uh, trade school, I think that's a, that's a conversation that isn't really um, talked about much is, you know, a four year um, undergraduate career followed by graduate school isn't for everybody. Like there are some people who will really have like, they'll, they'll find fulfillment, um, maybe being, you know, like an electrician or some, some form of trade. And those are high paying skilled jobs that, that are necessary. And um, I think high schools and just public schools in general need to do a better job at, at letting kids know that, um, you know, there are other options. There are other alternative careers that you don't always have to have the same kind of path that everybody takes. Um, so really, I just want him to find something that he's interested and passionate about. And, um, you know, right now he actually, He's being forced by my parents because he still lives at home to, um, oh, hold on. It's we okay. got light sensors. I mean, yeah. <laughs> we got light sensors in my office <laughs> and if I stay still for too long. You have to move around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've never, because people are always here in the office. That, that's the, so I'm, I'm currently reporting out of, um, our downtown office for the law firm that I work at. Um, it's a really small office. So, Usually there aren't that many people here, and I also live downtown, so I'm able to come here and kind of use it as a as a second office, which Word. is really nice because I have two dogs at home that are really annoying sometimes. Oh, nice! And our, uh, you know, me, me and my girlfriend Marley, like, I mean, hopefully we're gonna be in Houston next year. So really, yeah, awesome, I, I don't know if I, I didn't. I don't think I told you that, but where do you live? Do you live in Midtown or like downtown or? I live downtown, oh, but okay. I'm like five minutes away from Midtown. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm like walking distance to the Rocket Stadium. Gotcha. Yeah, like how it works is um, like four years of medical school and then four years of residency. residency. And then it's called the match. Like you put your preferences down and then they put their preferences down and then like you match if it's match. It's just this weird thing, but we're putting Houston number one, so. Awesome. That's, that's really cool. Is there a lot of people that, you know, I guess want to go to Houston? It's a, it's a huge like medical hub. There's plenty yeah. of hospitals here. Yeah. Yeah, there are. I think there are. Um, I've been fortunate that she's like a really good applicant. And so it's like, you know, like we <laughs> did y'all, did y'all meet in medical school or is it? We did. Yeah. Uh, we, we met, we met, um, in medical school and, uh, yeah. Um, uh, like it was, you know, it's tough going to like a new city. Um, like Kansas City, like I didn't know anybody, not a soul. And I met her yeah. the first year and it like, I don't know, it just was so good, man. Like it was so beautiful and it just was a good thing <laughs> for me. And it's been good so That's far. That's awesome. But um, since, since we're talking about relationships, I, I have to give a shout out to my fiance, Paula. That's um, what I was, yeah. We're yeah. actually getting, we're getting married like in three weeks or something like that. It's coming oh out. Oh my gosh, congratulations. Thank yeah, you. I appreciate it. I yeah, think I keeping met... it small because uh, of COVID and everything. Because yeah. I definitely had some pledge bros um, reach out to me and they were like, hey, when, do you need my address? When am I getting like, the invite <laughs> on my plate? <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, yeah, no, that's yeah. that's awesome, man. Um, I think I've met, I've, I've met her once or twice um, 
an undergrad, but that's yeah. so cool. It's good to see you guys are still together. I mean, I remember when you were always were like talking about her and stuff. I was like, yeah, he's about like he's about it. Yeah, we just, um, you know, we just ended up being really perfect for each other. Um, she's also like a first generation immigrant. Her parents came over from Chile, like the southernmost point, Punta Arenas, like of the southern of South America. Um, you know, and we just happened to meet at Texas State at a random party. So yeah, it's it's pretty crazy how fate works out. It, it is pretty crazy. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about like how you went to Houston and you went to, um, you know, South Texas College of Law. Could you just talk about a little bit more maybe about your decision in, in making where you went to law school? There's this... Uh... I guess this myth, or I don't really want to call it, a, call it a myth because there is some truth to it that, um, you know, your first year of law school, your grades really determine everything, like the kind of internships you get, the kind of jobs you get after that, um, the opportunities that are available. And there is some truth to that. But at the same time, if you really get involved and, and you talk to the right people, um, you know, you're going to find, you're going to find something like, for example, um, I'm interested in transactional law. You know, I want to be an attorney that helps uh, um, entrepreneurs and businesses, um, you know, create their agreements, their documents, um, their deals, um, as opposed to like a litigator that goes in and like fights in court, you know. And so those type of jobs are usually available in what's called big law. And that's basically, you know, your international law firms that represent Samsung and represent, you know, major companies and stuff like that. Cause they do a lot of transactions, like a lot of mergers and acquisitions and those types, those types of things. And so, um, you know, there was a point where I felt like it was almost, uh, an unreachable goal because I didn't have those type of grades when I first started. And I didn't have, um, you know, cause they're, depending on the school you go to, like you might have to be in the top 10% to get those kind of positions or top 5%. And so um, I really just tried my best and kept networking and networking. And um, I did land a position with a oil and gas firm um, that focuses mostly on transactional work. Yeah. And I was super excited about that. Um, and that was pre-COVID. And then pretty much as soon as COVID hit was around the time that oil, pli- oil prices dipped completely and the oil and gas firm kind of uh reached back out to me and was like and you know on second thought we're gonna have to actually lay off some people so we can't bring in any more people and so that was kind of devastating and i was like damn what am i gonna do now um but i just kind of uh you know scrambled and started reaching out to the people on linkedin um that kind of did things that i was interested in and a conversation led to another and eventually I got offered a position just, just by being persistent. Yeah. And so there's, there's something to say about, you know, persistency, like yeah. don't, don't give up. Um, don't think that all of your doors should close because that may not always be the case. Yeah. You know, I feel like there was a big like misinterpretation with just law and business. It's like um, a lot of times when people think about like attorneys classically, like the classic stereotype, it's like you were saying like the big corporate like attorneys that are, you know, they have their mustaches and their, their monocles and they're like, you know, on Wall Street. But it's really kind of about like helping people achieve the dream that they want to achieve. Like with in the rules that we have put into place as society, like which is so right. such a cool thing, actually, 
if you think about it that way. Um, and I feel the same way kind of about business, but that's kind of an aside. You know, something we didn't talk about is, um, so your parents came from Columbia and then they came to Houston. Um, no, so they, so the first place we actually lived was New York. Um, gotcha. We, we moved there first, and then after uh, a few years, we ended up moving to San Antonio because um, my dad did his, he finished his RN degree um, in Puerto Rico, actually, and that's where he met some, some people that lived in Texas, and they were like, yeah, the, the market for jobs for, um, you know, nurses and nurse practitioners is, is pretty good right now in Texas. You should come check it out. I have some resources for you. And so that's really how we ended up in Texas. Gotcha, gotcha. And um, thanks. So, how important do you think like having an emotional or social support system is, like when you go to school, you know, a medical school or a like law school, business school, just like how it's, crucial yeah. do you think that is? Uh, it it might be like the most crucial, I would say. Um, there were definitely some times, and. You know, I don't know if it's the same for medical school. I would assume it is. But the hardest year is the first year because it's so new. It's yeah. it's nothing like undergrad. Yeah, and, um, you know, um, there are times when – and there's a lot of uncertainty. I Maybe this part of law school and medical school is different. But in law school, there's one exam at the end of the course, and that's it. That determines everything. You're great for the entire course. There's no, like, project, no quizzes, nothing. It's just, so it's a lot of stress, you know, like you don't know if you know it until after your test is graded. And so there's that uncertainty and um, maybe it's on purpose um, that law schools do this because as a lawyer, you deal with uncertainty every day and you have to be comfortable with it. Um, so there were times definitely when, you know, I was doing practice exams or I was, um, doing something where I maybe wasn't getting, getting it. And, and it was pretty close to a breakdown. Like I, w I would be like, damn, I'm, I'm going to fail. Like I'm not going to get that transactional job because I'm not going to be in the top 10% or I'm not going to make it onto like a journal because my writing may not be good enough. Um, so it's very adversarial and you have to have someone in your corner to kind of ground you and be like, it's not the end of the world. Like you're going to, you're going to become an attorney, whether you're in the top of the class or at the bottom of your class. Um, you know, you, you're going to put the work in to take the bar exam and become licensed just like anybody else. Um, and so I think, you know, my, uh, my emotional support was, you know, my family and, and Paula really, because I didn't really know people here. And um, you get close to people, you know, while you're going through the struggles. So, in, in law school, you get split up into sections, and it's I the way I like to talk about it is about it is it's a lot similar to like high school where you're with the same group of people, you just switch professors. You know, you, you like go to the next professor, but you're with the same like group of class or whatever. So oh, yeah. you really develop like a tight a tighter knit group, and yeah, like um, you know, <laughs> yeah. So my my first section, uh, you know group with with the huge support because those are the people you talk to every day and yeah. you're going through it together so i assume that's how it kind of worked out with you and your girlfriend and yeah. you know your your friends in medical school yeah no i think that's so well said like it's like um 
like the classic thing is like you're going to war. Like obviously it's not even comparable, but it's like that's what people you know yeah. say. But I, I echo your sentiment like completely. It's like looking back, social support system and emotional support system. I mean, it kind of makes or break or break you. That's why I always tip my hat off to people that kind of like go their own way or or a little bit more reckless, like you know, going off somewhere far away to pursue this educational pursuit. It's just like at this point I, in my life, I couldn't do it. You know what I'm saying? It's like I don't. Know. I I just went to Easton, man. You went all the way to like Kansas City. Yeah, I mean <laughs> that I. It was just the best option for me, you know. Like, yeah, I could not make I, I that decision you. again. So we're we're trying to stay in the Midwest, the United States. Like Houston's the number one, <laughs> and then here in St. Louis. But but uh, does she have any connections to to Texas? Um, just me, really. Just me. Okay. Yeah, so that's the biggest connection, really. <laughs> the only yeah. Texas connection. <laughs> that's the most important one. It doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah, that's right. So. Um, can you talk a little bit about the bar exam? Yeah, so they actually changed it recently. So usually, um, before it used to be the Texas bar exam that you would take, and it was a three-day exam, um, and it was, you know, you would take it and you would become licensed in Texas to practice law. Um, now there's a there's a bunch of uh, states that have adopted what's called the uniform bar exam, the UBE which, um, you know, you can take and then depending on the score that you get, you can just wave into that jurisdiction. So you would, you know, if I get a score high enough, I can, I would only have to take this exam once and then I could practice wherever they accept the UB. Um, as opposed to for Texas, it was only specific in Texas. If I wanted to practice in New York also, I would have to go to New York and take the bar exam there. So this is awesome for me because I'm going to be the second. Um, it's good and bad. Good because, like I said, I can wave into other states. Bad because a lot of traditional bar prep programs have really focused on the Texas bar and there's not that much data and information on, you know, the success of their programs when it comes to the UBE. So in a way, we're like guinea pigs, or I should say the ones that um, just took it in February. The bar exam was actually yesterday here in Texas. And the day before that, um, yeah. So it's a it's a two day exam now, um, and it's uh, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. But basically, I I believe the first day is um, is all essays. So I think there's like eight or six essays. In the first half of the day, and then the second half of the day, you get what's called like an MPT, um, and that's uh, I don't really remember what the acronym stands for but basically it simulates what a lawyer does which is they read you know the law and then advise on what's going to happen in this particular situation so they give you like a packet that includes like a library which which is like all the cases that you need to read to understand this type of law and then they give you like the fact problem and they're like write a memo you have x amount of time so you have uh, you know, you have X amount of time to, to write a response to a client explaining, you know, what, a, what the potential outcome is based on, you know, the law that you read and understood in whatever amount of time you have. And then the last day is, um, is a bunch of multiple choice questions um, ranging, you know, from the major types of laws that you really learn your first and some second year, which is 
torts. I'm sure you're familiar with torts as a as a medical um, student. Um, that that's like you know medical malpractice, negligence, um, those type of things, and contract, constitutional law, evidence, um, criminal procedure, criminal law. Um, so it's a lot, you know, it's a lot of information that you have to really just spit out um, in a matter of minutes. So, you know, you're racing against the clock and it's not like we're going to talk about contracts first and then we're going to switch over to the next one. Like it's all random um, throughout the exam. So you have to like shift back and forth between different doctrines in your head. So it's tough, man. It's, uh, It's tough. Yeah, it sounds tough. So what is your kind of like day-to-day look like right now? So right now, um, I was pretty fortunate to uh, take some summer classes this past summer semester. Um, And so I'm only taking 11 hours right now and I'm working part-time. And so, you know, I have class maybe once or twice a day. so that might take like three hours of my day. Um, and then I'm working about like 20 hours a week. So it's a, it's a doable schedule. Um, and I do think that, you know, some people go through law school and, and don't work at all. They just, you know, do the school thing. But I think the experience that you get, you know, depending on the firm that you interned with or, or work with, um, it's really invaluable experience. Like, you know, um, there are things that we go over in class sometimes that people have no idea what they're talking about. Like an example is uh, I'm taking a real estate transactional course, which talks about, you know, every everything from the moment a client walks into your door and wants to invest in real estate all the way till closing of that real estate deal. And so um, at my firm, we we do a lot of real estate transactions. And so there's a lot of documents that I work on all the time that they're teaching us. And I'm like, Oh, I I've seen this before. Like it's not scary. I, I know what's in it. I know what it's about. Um, so I think if, if there's something that you know that you're interested in, you should try to seek experiences um, in that because you're going to learn a lot, um, you know, through those experiences. Is that similar to medical school or is that kind of like where the residency part kicks in? Like you get your experiences at the end. It is, um, that's really well said because like in medical school, what you do is you do two years of pre-clinic, preclinical. So you basically study like all the science and physiology and pharmacology, all of that the first two years. And then the second two years you do clinicals. Um, and that's when you like go on to the wards and go in clinics and interact with patients. But there is kind of a, it's a big disconnect, especially at first between like, you know, the science behind medicine and then like the human, human side of medicine. Um, so I definitely agree with you. Like if you can somehow integrate that quicker and some medical schools are moving towards that faster, like Madison, my sister, I think she does 1.5 years of preclinical and then you start with clinics like earlier because, you know. I personally think that a, a better doctor is like that humanistic side of them. You know, like you can know all the science, the basic science and pharmacology and, ph- and physiology in the world. But if you're not a good, 
you don't have that humanistic, caring side of you. I don't ever think you're going to be be that great of a, a physician. But that's a good point. How how do you uh, how do you feel that like telemedicine has evolved with like COVID and everything, and people, you know, yeah, um, diagnosing through Zoom instead of being there? Is there like a loss of personal connection, or do you think uh, you know if you're good with technology, you should be able to adapt? Dude, I love it. Yeah, I love it. I think if you're good with technology, then you need to adapt. It's just kind of like the progression of things. Um, I think it's great. I mean, you get care to people that like might not have care. And that's kind of where like I've had a, my perspective changed so much over the past couple of years, like with health disparities and like socioeconomic classes and the disparity like just seeing it in real time is so unbelievable. And if you can get the care to the people through a TV, like a screen, like, then why wouldn't you? You know what I mean? And some, like, there's like a faction of medicine that is like kind of resilient to it. Like doesn't, you know, it doesn't want to give it up, but it's like, no, I'm not a part of that. It's like, it's change and progress is good in my, in, from my perspective, but yeah, I agree. And, you know, lawyers are no different. Um, they're really hesitant to change and to adapt to new technologies. But um, we've seen it here, too. Um, I was involved in uh, in our um, one of our clinics where we get we get to, like, I guess, under the supervision of an attorney, um, you know, we get to kind of represent clients in, in certain legal matters. And the clinic that I was involved in was an estate planning clinic. And so I helped, uh, you know, a client that didn't have much money, um, didn't really speak English that well, um, create an estate plan because she was getting older and, you know, she was concerned about her major assets, which is, which was really her house and making sure that, you know, her kids got what they needed to get. And, um, yeah, and, and all of that was done through Zoom. All of that was done uh, virtually because that was during the pandemic. And um, I think you're right. Like people who can adopt, who can adapt to this type of technology in this format, you know, they're really going to succeed because what, whether the pandemic stays or goes away, like this, this form of communicating is not going to go away. Exactly. Like it's already changed. You know what I mean? The next thing has kind of already happened. So but no, I think that's really well said. And like, if you care about those things, like getting the, the adequate resources and support to the people that don't have it, which is exactly what, like, you know, the ideal physician and ideal attorney, like sort of is, it's like, then why wouldn't you, why would you not be open to that? So I'm definitely with you there. Um, but yeah. um, where do you see yourself like in your career and you know, like four or five years, you and Paula, like you guys probably have a family or something and you're, you're working, <laughs> working some law. <laughs> um, definitely, hopefully still, you know, practicing law because this is, this is a lot of effort. Um, you know, I, I want to make the most of it once I do get this degree, but I'm, I'm really interested in entrepreneurship as well. You know, I, um, like I said, I want to focus on a transactional career, um, not only because I want to help client, clients like, you know, create their their companies and, um, you know, mitigate their risk on their on their transactions. But personally, myself, like I want to maybe, you know, form my own companies and corporations or 
partnerships and even invest in real estate, which is why I do a lot of real estate transaction work. Um, so I don't know. I mean, really this degree is, I, I just want to use it as, as part of, you know, my tool belt. Like it's, I may not be a practicing attorney my entire life, but the skills that I learned here, um, are, is definitely something that I, I want to take away and, and just use. Um, so, so I don't know. I mean, ideally I'd, I'd want to continue to practice law. Um, but I'm also open to, you know, having other, other ventures on the side or, or whatever, because yeah. I, I really think there's a lot of value. Um, and I think mentor, mentorship is important to me. Um, I've had a lot of great mentors um, throughout my, my life and um, it's, they've really helped me get to where I am today. And I think the way that I can give back is by, by mentoring the next generation of whether it's attorneys or, you know, a high school student, just like when I was a high school student and I reached out to an attorney, like I want to be that attorney that answers that call. And it's just like, yeah, let me show you what I do. So it could either scare the hell out of you and you can go find something else you're interested in or, you know, you can yeah. show up and do the work. So. Yeah, right. Where do you think that, you know, we kind of talked about it for a second, kind of where your mindset comes from. But, you know, sometimes I feel like just this is just from my perspective, kind of like a, the expectations that are put on me. It kind of puts you in like a rigid mindset where it's like I have to do this. This is the next stage of my career. This is the next stage of my career. This is the next stage of my career. But where do you think that like, you know, in like creative, innovative side of you comes from that you don't want to just stick to being a JD, you know, and go down this path, but you might want to do some other things. Um, I think it's just came from experiences of getting knocked down and getting knocked off your path. You know, like I said, I thought I was going to go through undergrad and just go straight into law school. Um, but that's not how life turned out. Um, and so you have to, have to kind of step back and, and see the forest before you, you know, get into the trees. And so I feel like uh, having an end goal is important, but understanding that mapping out your path, that's not the way it's always going to play out. And so um, really you want to just learn everything you can from, from the moment that you're in, in that particular time and try to use that, like to get to that end goal. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with you there. Um, I feel like medicine, like so many times, it's like you become a physician and it's like that's the end of it. But I could just go off on a rant on this. It's like um, because medicine and healthcare is kind of like the like the old guard is kind of upset. It, it's kind of they're stuck in their old ways. You know, there's like an administration side and then the doctors. But it's like one of my big like goals kind of is like to merge the two of them. Um, but yeah, man, that's, that's really well said. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Um, you know, I just, medicine and law, they're, they're very, I guess, slow to adapt and having, you know, people that recognize that there's this necessity to speed up that, that process. You know, that's important. And so you're, you're currently doing your MBA too. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was like a, basically summers mainly and then overlapping okay. a little bit with, um, with medical school. And honestly, it was probably the best decision that I've, that I've made so far. I think it just is expand. Like, that's awesome. Yeah. 
just think about things a lot differently, like with, um, you know, delivery, healthcare delivery, and like I said, like economic and healthcare disparities, like, which is something that I never would have been exposed to. Like, I've always kind of known it, but I was so shielded kind of growing up that I never got that aspect of it. So it's definitely changed my thinking in a lot of ways. I feel, yeah. like, I feel like law is a little bit, like it's already pretty entangled in business. So I feel like you kind of get a more business, like um, sort of exposure, at least quicker than maybe medicine. I could be wrong in that, but. With the successful, you know, what I've heard from other attorneys is that to, to be really successful, um, you have to know the business side too, uh, not yeah. just the law side. Yeah. And so once you start focusing on a specific type of area or a specific type of clientele, you know, you learn their business. And so you become that much better of an advocate for them because you understand what their business really needs. Um, so um, I'm super blessed that, you know, the type of clients that we work with are all, um, you know, pretty established corporations or entrepreneurs that have done this before, you know. So I'm getting exposed to a lot of the business side too. Cool, man. Well, damn, you're getting me all psyched up about, about things. I think we could talk a little bit more about, um, I guess, the pain that is internalized in the profession, like both, you know, medical um, and law, yeah, for example. You know, there's a lot of substance abuse um, yeah. in, in the legal profession. There's, you carry a lot of the stress from your clients, um, especially in, it's, it's usually always high stakes, you know, whether it's a divorce or it's a, a piece of real estate property that you're trying to transact on. Um, so being able to manage stress is important. And um, I think it's even more important to, to find something that is a stress reliever, uh, especially in a time right now during COVID where, you know, you're stuck at home and you're, you're in your little corner, like pretty much for 24 hours, you are in school, then you switch over to work from the same computer. And then maybe you're watching Netflix in the room next door. Like, so, you know, people, you know, work out and do a lot of fitness and stuff like that to relieve stress. But right now with COVID that may be limited, you know, with gyms closing and, um, having just limited participants in, in fitness classes. And like I was playing soccer before this and the league closed because of COVID. It, it recently opened up. So I've been getting my, my grind back on, but yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely so. agree with you. It, it's been so hard. I feel like for people in during this COVID obviously pandemic to like make new connections and kind of make new friendships and kind of get out of their normal sort of sphere, like you were saying, because everything's been kind of closed down and it's so hard to connect with community if you don't, if you can't form those connections. But, um, what, what have y'all been doing? Like, you know, your classmates and everything to kind of de-stress and. So I, I personally de-stress with like fitness, like you were saying. Um, and then me and Marley de-stress together kind of in our own ways. Then we have our like own little inner circle. Um, but to be honest, like we kind of de-stress by seeing our families mainly like, um, my family's obviously in Dallas and hers isn't, we're here in Kansas city, but just kind of seeing them like is, is how it's like you progress and are like back to normalcy. Um, 
but yeah, honestly, it's been hard. Like, I feel like I, I get really big about fitness, like some weeks and I'm like, nah, and then just like eating like crap and just doing what I shouldn't be doing like other weeks, you know, it's like a cycle. So I need to be a little bit more consistent, but like there isn't anything really specific, you know, except yoga, yoga and fitness is really it. Got it. Yeah, I need to do more flexibility stuff. Paula does a lot of Pilates, and she's always like, oh, you should come do something. Oh, like, yeah. That sounds well, tough. <laughs> you know, it's the mental thing, too. Like, it's like um, when you're sitting there, you know, exhausted, you don't really think about anything. You have a, such a clear state of mind. It's like, it just is cathartic almost, like, mentally. But, but yeah, no, I think yeah. you bring up a great point. Like, in especially in our careers, how you handle and cope like can almost it almost can make or break you really like it can make or break your career for sure so, yeah i mean it's crazy because like we're not even you know practicing medicine or law right now um but you still experience that burnout that you know you hear so much about of the practitioners dealing with all the time and it's like if it's tough now like i can't imagine how difficult it's going to be a few years from now right when you know yeah but you know like the thing is you find what you want to do and you can wake up every day and do it so for example for you i can see the passion with transactional law like finding somebody and bring it like into the world like you know business and you can wake up and do that um you know we all get burned out every every now and then but as long as you can wake up and figure out what you want to do like it's all good you know what i'm saying Definitely, for sure. Well, cool, man. Any uh, any last words or anything else that we missed? Uh, no, man. I just really appreciate you know you having me on. Um, this is an awesome awesome thing you're doing. Um, I'm sure your audience is going to be really happy to hear about you know some some law and some medicine coming together. I think so too. I think so too. Um, well, cool. I think we'll probably call it call it there. Okay, well, what I'd like to do now is share another clinical story today. If you listen to the podcast episode titled Hunter Eller to be continued, that was the first time I kind of started sharing these. And similarly, I want to set the background for my listeners. I was on basically a rotation with a really good attending, a great attending. And he was definitely hard on you. He expected a lot out of you. You know, sometimes I think that can be a good thing, especially for learning. But anyways, there was a patient uh, who had kind of been in and out of the hospital previously with a chronic disease. And basically, I'm not going to get into the symptoms that brought them into the hospital or kind of give away anything about their clinical story. Um, And that, again, is because of the importance of HIPAA, which we kind of discussed in uh, the episode titled Hunter Eller to be continued. But basically, like this is these are symptoms that would freak, you know, almost anybody out like it. If you're a normal human, it was, it was a pretty big deal, the symptoms that this patient was having. And kind of as things played out, uh, for whatever reason, I really connected with this patient. We started to get along really well. Um, like this was a genuine person, you know, like a, a genuine human being. And they had like such a unique life story and background that was, it was pretty cool. It was remarkable, really. And this person was from a particular socioeconomic class. You know, they hadn't been given much in life from what I could sort of gather and gleam as I got to know them. 
there was a lot of hard work and struggle in their life just to make ends meet, uh, basically just to get food on the table for their family. And you know, I grew up in like one of the most privileged places, like probably imaginable. And when I say that, it's, I'm not saying that to be kind of ashamed of growing up there. And I'm, I'm not trying to brag about it or anything. You know, I'm, I'm re- actually kind of proud of my parents for struggling and working hard to put themselves in a position to raise a family in a place like that. It kind of just is what it is. You know, you can't really change where you grew up. But in my life, my particular experience, you know, as I've traveled and lived and went to school and worked in different places with different people from all different walks of life, I sort of have these sometimes little reflective moments where I think to myself, kind of like, wow, I grew up in a place with a wildly different set of resources and advantages that a lot of people in the world that I'm meeting um, don't really have. You know, I was kind of shielded from just this wide range of experiences, these people I'm meeting in my life, these wonderful, awesome, you know, funny, loving humans that I've gotten to know. And for me, like, with this patient, I really had one of these reflective moments. It was just so clear and strong for me in regard to this. It's a moment that I don't think I'm ever really going to shake. It'll probably stay with me for the rest of my career because kind of what happened was we couldn't figure out the etiology of this patient's symptoms. We, we couldn't figure out the disease or the disease process. And basically, where we were at, we did not have the resources at hand where we were institutional-wise to figure this out. So this person had to go somewhere else, somewhere other than this place, um, because we couldn't do it. And what ended up happening was we were getting a lot of pushback and ultimately, we could not transfer this person somewhere else. We couldn't get them to where they needed to go. And the reason for that is basically because of a lack of appropriate insurance, uh, appropriate payment plans, and really a lot of other complicated things that I'm not going to get into and even really still don't understand completely. This scenario came down to this patient not having the right health coverage to get the sort of specialized care that they needed. And so what they had to end up doing was they had to get divorced from their spouse. And just a little aside, uh, it is not all that uncommon in the U.S. to have to divorce your spouse to get the appropriate coverage you need. And I'll put a little citation um, if you want to continue to read about it in the podcast sort of comment area. But just a quick aside here um, to explain it, if you make As a joint couple over, I think it's probably like $80,000 a year, you do not qualify for a certain health insurance subsidy that is provided by the Affordable Care Act. So there can actually be a financial benefit to getting a divorce and thus be making less than $80,000 a year as one person living with a chronic disease and therefore you meet the qualifications for that specific health insurance policy subsidy. And You know, kind of seeing this in real time and being involved in that process and just being involved in that process, it was kind of big for me. You know, I'm sure there's many of you that have a different perspective, and I would guess, you know, I actually know for sure that most of you could probably guess where I lean politically or have traditionally leaned politically. You know, like I'm a a pretty cookie-cutter standard white guy that grew up in in North Texas. Um, the only thing different or unique about me is, you know, my defective <laughs> left foot. But uh, I don't want to get too deep off into the political landscape here, just other than to say that I think I'm not as politically molded 
as I was kind of in my uh, reckless youth. <laughs> I don't really think of things anymore as this side of the aisle on the right versus this side of the aisle on the left. It isn't so much that this side is the right way and this side is the wrong way. I think a good analogy that I like to cite is that your political beliefs in ideology can be like a set of clothes that you wear. You know, it can change over time. And you know, the truth is always somewhere there in the middle. So really where I'm trying to go with this is whatever ideology or political belief that you are a proponent of, I think when you are involved in these kind of moments and you still have that caring side about you, I think we can all agree and unify around the fact that we can make an improvement in regards to the conditions around which healthcare is being delivered uh, to this this patient and you know really this person um, I think that the fact that this incredible and wonderful person whose care I was involved in had to make a decision between appropriate care versus getting a divorce I don't I just don't think that's ever gonna sit right with me and like I said I think that's going to be a sort of motivator in my my career um, for years to come but um, but anyways just some thoughts and um, feel free to disagree and uh, you know voice your opposing opinion uh, you know light me up in the um, podcast comment section if that's what you need to do but thank you for bearing with me and um, thank you for tuning into the pain foundry podcast